Um, we're in a series in the Gospel of John, and we're looking at the end of the Gospel of John, this section where Jesus sits down with his disciples at the table, and he reminds them of kind of the most important things that, that uh, he's all about, about who he is, about what he's come to do, what he wants them to remember, and who he invites them to become. And so I was going to remind you of some of the things that we've looked at so far. The first week we saw that Jesus wants to show us that he is a God who serves, that that's the heart of who he is. And so the first thing he does at this meal is he strips down and he takes this lowly position as a servant. And he invites us and the disciples as his followers to become these kinds of people too, to be a people who serve. And then he, uh, this whole story is actually mobilized by questions. So that he is a God who invites questions and he invites us to be a people who ask questions to him. And then he's also a God who is bigger than the size of our brains. He is Yahweh Elohim. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so he invites us to be people who move to the edge of the places where we're comfortable, just like Dan shared so well, to become people who can see this God and point beyond ourselves to this God who is God. And he's the God who is three in one. He's this triune God who has been in community and in love with with himself and with each other for all eternity. And he invites us as his people to walk into this community of eternal love. And then last week, Mitch preached a great sermon on this wonderful passage, John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches and you're invited to abide in me, to join this this, uh, community of love. It says, just as God loves the Son, he shares that love with us. And Jesus calls us friends, one of the most beautiful parts of this uh, this upper room discourse. And then this week, the passage that I get starts like this. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else had done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. This is God's word. Well, what a fun, uplifting passage to start our Sunday morning with. Uh, I want to try this morning to look at this passage and answer three questions. First, why would Jesus use this kind of language, this conflict language, this heated language? The second is, who are the sides in this conflict? And then finally, what does this conflict mean for us? So we're going to take a look at why Jesus uses this language. Secondly, who are the the people in this conflict or the groups in this conflict? And then what does it mean for us? So let's start with the beginning. I think many of us recoil at this kind of language uh, for a couple different reasons. And there's probably at least two. First is that we're Canadians who are pretending to be Swiss, right? We just want to be neutral. We just don't want to get involved uh, we just like to keep it nice around here. Um, the, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says this is a, one of the things about that categorizes our culture is that we're, we want polite society. And so this is uh, um, one of the things that we reject. We don't like this kind of conflict, stark language. It's also something that happens as we're from a cold culture. 
a cold culture. It's not a good or bad thing. But there are other cultures that are warm cultures. So, for example, if you're from an African culture or if you're from a South American culture, you're probably from a warm culture, which is going to be a little more comfortable with, like, stark words and conflict. And Jesus was also from a warm culture. He's from a Middle Eastern culture. And so these words, although they might be, like, offensive to us as cold culture people, they, they won't uh, be as offensive in that language and it's, or in that culture. And it's just good for us to remember that, that the Bible is always speaking to us from another culture. But the second reason I think that this language, that we don't like it, is because it's been used by extreme groups. Whether historical or current, whether on the right or on the left, groups have used this language and even used the Bible to dehumanize people and incite violence. So why in the world would Jesus use this kind of language? And to answer that question, we have to zoom out a little bit to the Gospel of John and then zoom back into our context. So if we zoom out, and if you were to read the whole Gospel of John, which I'd encourage you to do sometime when we're in this series, you'll notice something interesting. You'll notice that this language of contrast or dualism, where there's just two options presented, this happens a lot in the Gospel of John. So Jesus will talk about light and darkness, death and life. Belief and unbelief, spirit and flesh. There's all these contrasts. And so in this passage, we see one of those contrasts. We see that, uh, as Mitch preached last week on abiding, and, and Dan talked so beautifully about, it says that if we abide in God, if we abide in Jesus, then we experience God's love. But then this passage contrasted and said there's this other group called the world, and that group will hate. And so we've got these two contrasts, being in Jesus or being in the world, and love and hate. And so if we zoom out, we'll see that this is actually a characteristic of the whole book of John. Now, why does the Gospel of John employ this language so often? Well, commentator John Gamey, he points out that the language of contrast or dualism, dualism being that there's just two options that you can choose from, you know, love or hate, Jesus or the world. This isn't used in every book of the Bible or by every author from the Bible, but it is used in one specific genre of the Bible. It's used quite often, and that genre is called apocalypse, apocalypse, or apocalyptic uh, literature. Now, what is apocalypse? Rather than trying to explain it to you, I want to give you an example. And I'm going to go where all of us are already going in our mind, which is to the 2007 Will Smith movie, I Am Legend. We all knew we were going there, so let's just go there. And spoiler alert, I'm going to wreck this movie for you. And if you're like, oh, but we were going to watch it this afternoon, we just... We just got it from Blockbuster. Like, okay, it's 15 years old. I think it's, it's okay that I ruin it. So here's this movie. Here's the plot of the movie. There's been a pandemic, and everybody has been turned, or most people in the world have been turned into uh, zombies. And so it's called, the genre of this movie is actually called a post-apocalyptic horror movie. And that's what we often think of when we think of apocalypse or apocalyptic language. It's like something really bad has happened, and it's turned the world into something that we don't recognize. That's what we usually think of when we think of Apocalypse, and this movie uh, fits in. And the main character, who's played by Will Smith, and remember, this is before we didn't like Will Smith. We liked Will Smith. <clears throat> he's a scientist uh, called Robert Neville, and he's one of the last human beings alive in the world. And he fights for his life, and he tries to save the human race. It is a very 2000 Swift, uh, 2007 Will Smith type of movie. And if anyone is going to be able to save the world, it's going to be this guy, Robert Neville. First of all, he's Will Smith. This is what he does. He saves things. Second, he's, as you can see in the picture, he's got like loads of guns and ammunition. He's quite well stocked. And then he's also a virologist, which is like a, a scientist who studies viruses, which is convenient, right? If anyone's going to be able to figure out what happened, it's going to be this guy. And he's got this huge lab that he has, this underground lab. 
So fast forward to the end of the movie. So Will Smith, Robert Neville is fighting these zombies all the way through. He's overcoming obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And then at the end of the movie, he has a realization. He has a realization. He's looking out. So he's got this lab and it's got protected glass doors. And he's looking out at all these zombies standing on the other side of the glass doors. And here's what it says in the book. Here's how it's written in the book that the movie is based on. They all stood, all the zombies, they stood looking at him with their white faces. And he stared back. And suddenly he thought, I'm the abnormal one now. Abruptly, that realization joined with what he saw on their faces. Awe, fear, shrinking horror. And he knew that they were afraid of him. To them, he was some terrible scourge they had never seen. A scourge even worse than the disease they'd come to live with. He was an invisible specter who had left for evidence of his existence the bloodless bodies of their loved ones. He was killing off hordes of them. Robert Neville looked out over the new people of the earth, and he knew he did not belong to them. He knew that, like the vampires, he was anathema and the black terror to be destroyed, a new terror born in death, a new superstition entering the unassailable fortress of forever. I am legend, he realized. I am the legend to them. So in his story, in the movie and the story, he'd been telling himself he'd been the hero. He'd been on this righteous journey to to kill all of the bad guys and restore humanity and save the world. But now, standing in front of these zombies on the other side of the glass, he realizes, and very importantly, he realizes they have emotions. They're afraid of him. He doesn't dehumanize them. He humanizes them. And he sees that in their eyes, he's actually the villain. Or in the language of 2024, he says, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. It's a pop culture inception. It's a pop culture reference within a pop culture reference. Very exciting. Um, Worked all week on that one. So in the end, in the original end of the movie, here's what happens. He has this realization. He realizes he's a legend. And he's been um, doing tests on this female zombie inside of his lab, trying to figure out uh, what's, how, to, how to heal uh, humanity. And he realizes that the zombies out there actually don't want to kill him. They want to rescue this female zombie. And so I, I couldn't grab a great still of it, but here's what happens. He slowly, he takes all of the um, wires off of the zombie, and he walks out the glass doors, and importantly, he walks out backwards. It's a posture of extreme vulnerability. These zombies that are all there could kill him at any point in time. And he walks slowly backwards out with his head down the whole time. And he says to the zombies, I'm sorry. And he heals the zombie. And then there's this, this, this crazy moment. What's going to happen? Are the zombies going to attack and kill him? Or are they going to forgive him? And in this extreme moment of pathos, this other zombie comes and lifts up the female zombie, grabs her in his arms, and holds her and cuddles her. And the zombies slowly walk away. And that's how the movie ends. Now, imagine that you're watching the movie, okay? Imagine you're watching it. And, and everybody says, actually, Will Smith does an amazing job of being Robert Neville. So you're starting to identify with the scientist. You're watching the movie throughout. And, and you start to identify with, with Neville. And you think of experiences in your own life where it's like, I've, I've had to overcome obstacles. There's been really hard things for me that I've had to overcome. Or maybe, if you're really honest with yourself, you might think of times where you're, you, had to, you feel like you had to uphold humanity that there were people that were trying to make you or things subhuman, and you had to be there to uphold the good. And then you get to this point in the movie, and Neville has this realization about himself. 
And then you, because you've identified with him, you also are invited to this same realization about yourself. And the point isn't to imagine yourself in 2007, post-apocalyptic New York, as Will Smith fighting zombies. As fun as that would be. That is not the invitation for us. The invitation is to look at our lives now and say, who are the people that I might treat as zombies? Where are the places in my life that I might be telling a hero story that for someone else might be the exact opposite? And and question yourself, am I the hero or am I legend? And this is what apocalypse does. This is apocalypse. That's what it is. It's a story or an image that takes us into another world. It's usually a symbolic world where there's all these kinds of crazy otherworldly images. But the point isn't to stay there. The point is to go there in the story so that we can be invited back into our moment and look at it with new eyes and ask the questions that we ask when we enter into that story. That's what the word apocalypse means in in the Greek. It's an unveiling or a revealing or the word that's used in the Bible, a revelation. That's what the name of that book comes from. It's apocalypse. It's an invitation to enter this crazy world with symbols so that we might live in a new way here and now. And here's the carryover to our passage today. Jesus is the same thing. Jesus is an apocalypse. He comes from another world and he comes into ours to invite us to see how his world might be different, to change the way that we see it. I said this a few weeks ago. Jesus wants to take these tiny little visions that we have of love, of joy, of peace, these tiny like breadcrumb visions of those things, and show us what the eternal feast of heaven looks like for those words. Not, Not just a little bit of joy, but joy like a river. Not just peace for me, but shalom for the entire world, flourishing for the entire world. Not just love as like or lust, but love as eternal family of love that we're invited to enter into. And so Jesus comes from another world as an apocalypse to say, these things are possible. Maybe in your world they're not, but in my world they are. And he wants to take our tiny little stories that we we tend to believe in and expand them to kingdom-sized stories that might be something that we might be willing to even suffer for, might be even willing to change our Facebook habits for like Dan said, and might be actually even willing to give our whole lives for. That's what he's trying to do. And Jesus employs every trick in the book to try to give us apocalypse. In the Gospel of John, it's talked about him doing signs, or we might call them miracles, but it calls them signs in the Gospel of John because they're pointing to a whole other world. And so Jesus comes and he says, yeah, in your world, dead people don't come back to life, but maybe there's a power stronger than even death itself. And so he heals someone to help us imagine and re-question our world. He tells stories in the other Gospels. They're called parables. And one of my favorite parable scholars, and yes, I have a favorite parable scholar. Um, You're probably not surprised. But he says this about the parables of Jesus. We should think of them by starting like this. Imagine a world like this. Every story that Jesus tells, imagine a world like this. Imagine a world where you screwed up royally. And you've lost absolutely everything. So you want to go home. You know that you could just be a servant at home. So you come home and you're walking home and you're rehearsing how sorry you're going to be and what you're going to say to your dad. And before you even get there, he runs out to meet you. And he doesn't let you get a word out. He's just hugging you. And he's saying, I thought you were dead, but now you're alive. We need to throw a feast. And he puts his coat on you. Imagine a world like that. That's what Jesus is trying to say through his stories. Maybe your world doesn't look like that. Maybe my world doesn't look like that. But imagine that there is. That's what Jesus is doing with these parables. And in this passage today, 
Jesus is just employing another technique for apocalypse. He's using very stark and contrasting language. Light and darkness, love and death, or life and death, sorry, love and hate. He's using that, this rhetorical device, to try to open up our eyes to see the world as he sees it. He's making something that we tend to make quite muddy very, very clear in order that we might be able to have an apocalypse. So, that's why he's using this language. So, who are the two sides in this conflict? There's two different sides. He's using this language of conflict. Who are the two different sides? Well, the first group in this conflict is called the world. The world. Now, this word world, say that ten times quickly, this word world is a Greek word that we actually still use. It's the word cosmos. And this is one of the Gospel of John's favorite words. It occurs over 70 times in the Gospel of John. But here's where it gets confusing. It can have up to ten different meanings, this word. And, in, and just like it does in Greek, we have some of the same problem with the word world. Like, for example, the word world can mean uh, the physical place that we live, this earth. It also can mean the totality or the sum of something. So, for example, the wizarding world of Harry Potter. Okay? That was a third pop culture reference. And a nod to anyone who went to Comic-Con or whatever was happening this weekend. Okay, so we, we have a, a semantic range for this word as well. So the question is, what does it mean here? And it doesn't mean all people everywhere. It also doesn't mean this physical world. Most commentators agree that what it means here is the world as set up against Jesus and his kingdom. The world as set up against Jesus and his kingdom. And, and for me, one of the best translations of this would then be empire. That's what he's talking about here, empire. Now, what is empire? Let me try to define it, and then let me try to give an example. So here's how I would define empire for us today. Empire is an entity, group, nation, or worldview that promotes a vision of the good life and a means for accomplishing this good life that, when threatened by the apocalypse of Jesus, results in violence. So it's an entity, group, nation, or worldview that's not a personal or individual thing. It's a group thing that promotes a vision of the good life, then that means it, it operates more on the story or the level of story than it does of cognition. It's not something we rationalize to, it's a story that we live in. And it gives a means of accomplishing this good life and usually happens through violence, dehumanization of other people, or slave labor. And when it's threatened by the apocalypse lips of Jesus, it results in violence. So that's the definition. Let me give you an example. And to do this, let's go back to Will Smith. I'm legend, okay? So remember this story, pandemic, zombies, he fights the zombies, and then he's like, oh, I'm legend. He has this amazing re revelation at the end, okay? That's the story. So this movie gets made. It cost Warner Brothers $150 million to make this movie, which at that time was a lot of money. So one of the things that studios do is they take these movies, after they've been made, they take them to a test audience, because they're like, we don't want to lose money on this movie. And so they test it. So what did the test audiences think? They loved the first part of the movie. They loved, remember, we all loved Will Smith, 2007, right? All loved Will Smith. They loved Will Smith. They loved the crazy action scenes and the zombies. They even loved the pandemic. Remember, this is pre-pandemic, too, when we were all like, that would be fun, right? And now we're like, no, 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 no. Um, okay? So they loved that until the end. And then we have this scene where he has this re realization. He realizes, I am legend. And he says, I'm sorry. And he makes himself vulnerable so that others could flourish. And how does the audience react? Two things. Confusion and anger. Confusion and anger. 
and they boo. They hate the end of this movie. Now, why do they hate the end of this movie? They hate it because it doesn't fit within the stories that they tell themselves, within the narrative arc of our culture, where humans can win over any kind of chaos, right? Especially with science. If we have science and Will Smith, that's like the dynamic duo. We can't lose. Okay, 2007 Will Smith, once again. Okay? The stories we tell ourselves are where good guys win and bad guys lose and heroes don't become villains and apologize at the end of the movie. That's not the way that our stories work. And a lot of commentators say that maybe deep in the subconscious of this uh, group of people was also the recent attacks that had happened uh, at 9-11, which happened in New York. They were, it was an apocalyptic event when terrorists drove planes into buildings in New York. And the U.S. was busy uh, at war in the Middle East with a group of people that they felt had dehumanized them, and so they were trying to dehumanize back. And they don't want to think about how, how should we forgive these people? That's not in the cultural narrative. And so what do they say? Boo to you, Will Smith. Boo to you, Robert Neville. You're not, you're not, a, you know, you're not legend. You're a wuss, basically. And at this point, the makers of the movie, they have a choice. What are they going to do? Are they going to put the movie out and possibly lose a lot of money? Or are they going to change the ending? And here's what they do. In response to the negative reviews, they replaced the theatrical cut with a more traditional Hollywood ending where the bad guys remain mindless, savage zombies, and Robert dies a hero's death after discovering a cure for the virus, setting themselves up for I Am Legend 2. If we were to use biblical language, we might say it like this. The people were offered an apocalypse, a new way of seeing the world, which made them very uncomfortable. But in order to receive this apocalypse, they would have to do some deep, deep work to question the stories that they've been told and the stories that they tell themselves, the ways that their hearts and their minds had been shaped by empire and the vision of the good life and how to get there. So for the test viewers, they'd have to let go of this Western hero narrative that most of us carry, that the myth that the good guys always win, that there are clear good guys and bad guys, and that we are the good guys. And they'd have to learn how to deal with the confusion and the anger that comes with that in order to receive a better story. For the studio, they'd have to reject the point that the great movie, the point of a great movie is to make a lot of money. And they'd have to change their story and go through the, the discomfort and hurt that the point of great art isn't to make a lot of money, but to help a group of people ask, imagine a world like this. But they couldn't do that. Empire was too strong. And so they colonized the movie. They did a type of violence to the movie. They changed the end of the movie so that it would fit within their narrative. And we might want to roll our eyes at the test audiences and be like, you know what, I've said it once. If I've said it a hundred times, test audiences are the worst. But this passage, and in fact the whole Bible, points out that that's not just them. It's every one of us. Every culture throughout history creates empire and sets itself against Jesus. And I've mentioned it previously, but in Jesus' day, that was exactly what was happening. There was these two groups of people that were the world. That's why Jesus uses this language, the world. He doesn't call out one group of people. There was these two groups in his time, though, the Romans and the Jews. And, and they both had their minds shaped by empire in a certain way. So they thought, the Roman people thought, you know what, what uh, the good life is? It's we have this leader, the Caesar, who is Lord. And he's conquered everyone, and he's brought peace. And the Jewish people had a very similar vision, except they were a people who had been conquered. So their vision of the good life was, we'll get a new leader, 
a Messiah, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And what will he do? He'll destroy Rome, and then he'll put us as the strongest people, and we'll reign and rule, and then there will be peace. They're telling the same story, just from different vantage points. And so when Jesus comes, it's an absolute apocalypse to that way of thinking. When Jesus announces himself as king, he is, it's a threat to Caesar. He's saying, you're not the true ultimate king of the world, I am. That's apocalypse. And when he says to them, I, I, I am the king, but I'm not coming in a, in a violence. I don't believe in the myth of redemptive violence. Instead, how I'm going to lead is through service. That is an offer of apocalypse to their way of thinking in the world. This is what the passage means when it says this, when it says that Jesus coming, his speaking, and his works expose sin. It's an apocalypse. It's not sin on the personal level, like I did a bad thing. It's, it's exposing empire. That's what he's doing. Jesus is ultimately the other person on the other side on the side of other side of this conflict. There's the world and then there's Jesus because he's in, always inviting us and asking us to dream of a different world that challenges empire. But that's not easy as we've seen. It's very difficult to hear those words from Jesus. Much like the test audience when he does that to people, we're going to be confused and angry. In his commentary on John 15, Greek expert Robert Mount says it this way. There's nothing quite as upsetting as to have one's essential value orientation called into question. There's nothing quite as upsetting as to have one's essential value orientation called into question. There's nothing quite as upsetting as someone coming and telling you, I am legend. There's nothing quite as upsetting as a God-man who comes and says, I invite you into a different world. It's going to be an upsetting thing. And so for the original people, there was original two groups, the Romans and the Jews. When Jesus comes and does that to them, rather than receiving his offer of apocalypse, what happens is these two groups who hated each other, they actually join forces and they do violence to Jesus. They kill him. Rather than allow their stories of empire to be challenged, they challenge Jesus and they crush him with the power of empire. And although we live 2,000 years later, I don't think we're any different. I don't think the Bible allows us to think that we're any different. We just do it in a different way. So as I said Uh, a couple weeks ago, we are a much less communal culture than 2,000 years ago. So what we tend to do is we tend to take those dreams of empire and where they're not nationalistic dreams, especially as Canadians. We're kind of like love and also slightly embarrassed at our country at the same time. But what we do is we individualize that dream of empire. This is about a good life for me, not my people, a good life for me, a comfortable life, a life of leisure, a life that slowly and incrementally gets better or as I call it, the middle-class Canadian dream. This is our dream of empire. And again, I want to say, like, being middle-class is not wrong. Good for you if you've managed to get there. Teach me. You could be my rabbi. I'd love to know how to get there. The point of it is the dream that we have of being middle-class can eclipse the offer of Jesus for his kingdom and cause us to reject the apocalypse of Jesus. For example, we hear Jesus very clearly say in this passage, if you follow me, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. It's as clear as day. He's basically saying, and he says it a bunch of other places, if you're wondering about the promises of Jesus, these are some of the most clear, actually. If you follow me, life will be hard. And that's not the end of the story, but that is there. People won't like you if you follow me because you follow me. And then we get into moments where our middle-class dream is is challenged, where life gets hard. It's not easy. And then in those moments, what do we think? We're not getting what we deserve, and we're like, Jesus, where are you? 
Come on. What's even the point of all this? And that is exactly how empire works, that our minds have been colonized by this other story. And we, we can't imagine a different possibility. And so we twist Jesus' words and we highlight words or passages that help us to the words, our vision of the good life. All things work together for those who love Jesus, which is in the Bible, but basically we means, yeah, there might be a dip now, but it's going to go back and get better later on. And we ignore these words of Jesus. And that's another reason he uses such stark language here. It's not because he's trying to be mean. He just wants to make his words so clear that we can't twist them into our visions of empire, because that's what we do. We twist the words of Jesus into our vision of the good life, and we make him not the king, but we make him a slave of our visions of what our lives should look like. And so Jesus counters that with very strong language so that we might be shocked into apocalypse to see what the world is actually like. So what does this mean for us? I'm going to say three things, and we're going to look at this passage, not this passage, but maybe the better news of the next part of the passage next week. So we'll come back to this a little bit, but I want to close by just saying three things that I think this passage says for us today. First is this. If we are Christians, we are to be a people who remain continually open to the apocalypse of Jesus and the rejection of empire. As Christians, we must be continually open to how Jesus wants to give us an apocalypse and reject empire in our lives. Because Jesus, by his grace, will continually come and he'll challenge the stories that we tell about ourselves and each other, which, as Mount says, will be very disorienting and challenging work. But this is what the offer to be with Jesus is, to be abide in him, as Mitch read last week. The offer to abide, which is such a nice offer to be in his love, also comes with this pruning that the gardener will do. This continual pruning so that we'll bear more fruit. That is the offer to be with Jesus. So to copy Jesus' stark language, I would say it this way. We either are abiding in Jesus and being pruned, being challenged, or we are part of the world as set up against Jesus. That's the two options. And it's not like me to talk like that, but I, I do want to mimic the language of this passage. Those, that's the stark offer from Jesus. Now, this can be really, really theoretical. So I want to just give you an example, a, a very personal example of how this is happening in my own life right now. So one of the, the interesting things about being like a, a preacher, I guess, is that your mind is always in at least two places at once. So um, I'm preaching on this this week, and I'm preparing for this specific sermon, but all the work that I've done for this series is already done. And I'm preparing now for the next series that we're going to do, which is after Easter, we're going to talk about housing in the city. And so I'm reading and thinking about that all the time. And I'm almost daily confronted with how much my vision of home and of house is shaped by the middle-class Canadian dream. Almost every day. And it's probably a mix of, of uh, something of where I grew up. So I grew up in northern Alberta. The time that I grew up, and something about my personality. But I just always assumed that I would own a home. Like, it was not even a question for me. I just assumed that it was. Uh, and I, I would own a home. Actually, I remember this as I've been thinking about this. We, I had a friend whose mom moved into a condo. And my friends and I, we were like 13. And we're like, is she poor? Why does she live in a condo? Um, it would be a home. Like, it didn't, I never even questioned it, okay? And then um, about 17 years ago, we moved here to Vancouver for ministry. And we've never been able to afford a home. And so it's been a constant point of, of what the test audience felt, confusion and frustration and anger for me over those 17 years. 
because Vancouver has messed with my vision of the good life. It's been a kind of apocalypse for me. And no one ever told me this directly, at least I don't think. Um, my parents are here today. Maybe you could ask them if someone ever... T- I don't think anyone ever sat me down and told me this. But somehow I absorbed this message that I deserved a home. And that if I did the right things, which basically means I saved and I didn't spend as much as I brought in, and I worked really hard, I would be able to afford a home. This is just part of rummaging in the back of my mind all this time. And, and then two other things that maybe are more unique to me. Um, the first is this, that we moved here for ministry. Uh, we felt called to come to Vancouver. And so I would have never been able to articulate this when we moved here, but I can articulate it now. In the back of my mind was this idea that if I did this for God, he would do whatever. He would, he would make my vision of the good life come true. It, I, I've never been able to say that. But now, not having owned a home, I can say it. And then the other thing for me is that home ownership for me is actually a core part of my identity. And that may or may not be true for some of you. For example, my wife, she kind of doesn't care. And I'm like, are you an alien? Like, what's going on? Because for me, a home actually says something about what I've accomplished in my life. That I've done something. And I think in pastoral work, sometimes too, you can be like, have we done anything? I don't know. Um, And and so it's like this marker of something that, that I would have done. And that I am someone and, and for me, I'm not saying this is healthy, but also it touches on what I think it means to be a man. I'm not saying that that's healthy. I'm just being honest. It goes very deep for me. And so it's been a place of confusion and anger for me that I continue, I do bring it to God. Um, and, and I do experience comfort from God, but it's not in the way that I want. What I want from God is for him to be like, oh, buddy, oh, buddy, you work so hard. You're such a good servant. You know, it's crazy that your kids don't have a backyard. That is crazy. That is not the will of God. So here's what I'm going to do for you, buddy. For 15 minutes at 2.15 a.m. tomorrow morning, I'm going to change the prices of houses just for you. And you're going to be able to afford a house, and, and everyone is going to talk about it for years and how God is so good. And your church will grow by 50% or whatever. You know what I'm saying? I want that kind of comfort. That's not the comfort I get. What I get is the comfort of apocalypse. When I go to God's story, here's what I read, that, that we have a God who has left his home. Slight downgrade to come here, if you ask me. And not only that, but when he was here, he was homeless. And he gave his whole life so that I might have a home. As cheesy as that sounds, that's the story that I might have a place to abide. That's all over this passage, that he goes to make a home for us, that he actually wants to come and make his home with me, with me. And when I allow myself to believe that, when I allow myself to abide in that truth, I experience a deep comfort. I won't lie to you. It's a deep comfort of hope, and I experience what this passage talks about, which is like this love from God, the love that God must have had for the Father. I experience something like that. And yet, at the same time, so often, I want to change the story. I want to be like, yes, Lord, I abide in you. And also, I just like to abide in a house, kind of Mount Pleasant area, just not past King Ed, Lord. But if I have to, past King Ed, Lord. Past. And it's just this ongoing wrestle because empire is deep in me. 
Empire is very deep in me, in this part of my story. It's a wrestle. It's where empire and the story of Jesus meet in my life. And I don't want to call it persecution. I, I really don't want to. If there's people coming from places of persecution, they'd be like, bro, not even close. I totally get that. But at the same time, I don't want to lose the place in my very privileged life where God is pressing in. And I don't want us to either, the places where empire is challenged. And so I share this to say, you know, many of us, we carry a story about Jesus that says probably something like this. I became a Christian, and then the hard work was done. And now, like, life is just, just tough, but I'm a good person. And I think we can miss the places where God is actually consistently pruning where he wants to do that hard work, not because he hates you, but because he loves you, because he has a bigger vision than me just owning a little piece of property. He has a vision of me becoming someone who looks like Jesus. That we might be a group of people who reflect this God who wants to make his home with us. And so the, the invitation to sit around the table with Jesus is always this beautiful invitation to come and to eat, but it's also to come and be pruned. And I think those times in my life, just speaking for myself, when I feel God is, is, is not living up to my expectations, it feels like God's kicking me away from the table. But what this passage is trying to tell us, I think, is that God actually might be inviting you to a place of honor. Is to sit with him, beside him, at a table with a God who has suffered. Who knows exactly what that's like. And so my invitation to, to me and to you is don't shy away from these places. Even though that's tough, even though they're challenging, even though they hurt, because maybe that's exactly where God wants to minister. And so I'll just double down on what Mitch said really well last week. The invitation is to come, to abide, is to come as people who repent and confess. That we have stories that we share, and sometimes they're not at the level of cognition. They're just things we've been told. And I don't even know where I've been told all of this stuff. But God has a different story that he invites us with. And so we come with this invitation to confess, to repent, and to take on this story and the apocalypse of Jesus. Secondly, Christians then should expect that becoming open to the apocalypse of Jesus and rejecting empire will result in hardship, hatred, and persecution from the world. This is really the main message of this text. And you're like, oh, 30 minutes in, you get there? Fantastic. It really is, but it's, it's, it's I'll just say it starkly. If we're in Jesus, we will be hated and persecuted. This is one of the promises. And I'm not saying that like it's good news or we should go look for it, but it is true. And we're going to talk about this more next week and the many ways we get this wrong, I think. But for this week, I think we just need to set our expectations. That's the invitation to change our expectations that this is part of the Christian life. Because if we're in Christ, we're going to become like Jesus. Praise God. But that means that we'll also become persecuted like him. We'll be learned to be people who don't use the power in the same way, but we'll serve. We'll learn to be people who don't hate and threaten, but become peacemakers. And that will put us in a place of vulnerability. And it's going to be hard, and it's going to hurt. And that's a shock to most of the stories that we carry as Canadians, that life should be easy if we work hard and we're good Christians. But here's the final point. Christians who are open to the continual apocalypse of Jesus and rejecting empire, which results in hardship, hatred, and persecution from the world, will have a great hope and a great promise. We're going to carry this conversation on next week with a lot of different things and talk specifically about the Holy Spirit. But here's two truths I want us to hang on to as we move towards response. Jesus promises that we experience these negative moments, these very hard moments, these apocalypses, that we will we will be able to meet him in a way that we couldn't when times were good and easy. 
Because Jesus is a God that was hated and persecuted. And he experienced the violence of empire at its worst. And he went there willingly to show us his love. And so I like to think of it like this. He didn't go up into the right. He came down to that place. And so when we are drawn down to that place, we get to meet him in a very specific way we couldn't when our lives are going up into the right. That's the promise of Jesus. And so in those tiny places that we experience the discomfort of Jesus' apocalypse, choose the road of following Jesus, and you might find that you meet the God who is God. The God who rejected empire and was crushed but brings new life. And, and when we go there, whether it's by the apocalypse of Jesus or just the light persecution that we feel in our own lives, our lives collectively as a church might turn out to be lives of light that shine a light out into our world. One last I am legend reference. After the terrible feedback from this movie, from the test audience, like I said, Warner Brothers changed the movie, and they made their money back. They made their money back, but it just had middling reviews. You may never have even heard of this movie because uh, it just wasn't that good. Here's a, a right, or sorry, right now on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 68% acceptance rate. Critics and audience agree it was just meh. 68%. Here's what one review. I Am Legend is half a good movie. The first half of the movie is wonderfully atmospheric. Somewhere along the line, something or a lot of things were changed and jettisoned. And it shows... I Am Legend is a disappointment. It was so familiar that it became forgettable. It didn't challenge the viewer. It was just 90 minutes that they spent at the theater. It was a meh. Each one of us has been entrusted with a story by Jesus. And there will be tremendous pressure. If you're here, you probably have made some choices in Jesus' direction. But there will be increasing and, and pressure for you to put your story towards the story of empire rather than the story of Jesus. And for those in our community, I'll say this. As you have kids, as you get married, as you have kids, as you get older, the pressures become stronger for empire. But if you go that route, you'll probably get a passing grade. You'll probably be a solid 68%. Some lukewarm reviews, but you'll never be an apocalypse. When we follow Jesus into these hard places and when he let him be the author of the stories of our lives, as painful and disorienting as that is, people will notice and it probably will mean some bad reviews. But it also is the great hope that people will see something different, a different ending to our lives, a different way of being human, a different story that points to another world of a God who would come and give his life so that we might have life. Let's pray to close. God, thank you for the invitation to be with you around the table. As we come now to partake in... Um, the bread and the, the wine, we also want to wrap our stories around yours to take the shape of yours. So for those of us who are here who are dealing with your apocalypse right now, like I said, whether it's from people hating them or whether it's just from disappointment of their dreams not being realized, I pray that you would meet them, that you would minister to them, and that you would draw them into your story. As we respond, may you continue to minister to us. May you show yourself here to be glorious and honored stronger than the stories that we bring into this place, that we might turn into a people who are a light and an apocalypse in our city. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.